Hello! Hello, everybody! Welcome to the Lunarverse! I'm Dr. Charles Liu. Please call me Chuck if you feel like it. And I'm here with two great people that I'm very proud to have with us today. First, our co-host, Alan Liu. Hey, Alan! How's it going? Hi, it's going good. All right, terrific. And our special guest, Paco Olguin. Paco, how you doing? Good to good. see you. Hi. You are an expert in computational astrophysics, including things like stuff that blows up out in space. So I can't wait to ask you about those things and talk to you about some of that cool fundamental science, as well as other neat things, because I understand you are also a science fiction aficionado, an expert, a person actually that has like a reading list waiting to be read. Is that true? Uh, I, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be a TV expert. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Spoken so modestly. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Okay, we start today, as we often do, by discussing today's joyfully cool cosmic thing. Now, this might seem a little mundane to you all, but I think it's super cool. Because as it turns out, neutrons, you know, those things, protons, neutrons, electrons, right? They decay. They actually do not stick around unless they are bound to protons in nuclei or ions and stuff like that. And so it has been a very important question. How long on average do neutrons sit around if they're unbound to anything else before they decay? Right, Paco? I mean, this is like stuff that we tried to learn in like elementary cosmology, right? Yeah, no, definitely. And that's actually one, of, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It's one of the things that when I first started getting into physics as a kid, the, the decay of the neutron was just something that I fixated on for some reason. No um, kidding. <laughs> yeah, I remember asking my, my middle school science teacher about it, and he was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, recently, at Los Alamos National Laboratories in New Mexico, a very interesting experiment was conducted whereby it has been measured now after looking carefully at almost 40 million neutrons floating around in special environments that we now think that the half-life of the neutron is 877 plus or minus 0.5 seconds. So that's like between 14 and 15 minutes. It's 14 and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah. If you realize that uh, in life, if everything were not made of protons and neutrons together, but just made of neutrons, the entire universe would be 15 minutes old. And that's it. We'd be done. Well, 15, half of all matter would decay, and then half all neutrons decay, another 15, another 15, another 15. So a few hours, we'd all be kind of subatomic particles. Eh, but we are not. And Los Alamos National Laboratories is indeed a cool place to do this because it is I would say, I don't know, what would you call it, Paco? The the most storied, most historically interesting nuclear science lab in the world? Uh yeah. I mean, just historically, I, that's that, that's where a lot of a lot of things happen, a lot of people gathered. Yeah. Los Alamos National Labs is in the northern part of New Mexico. And it's a little bit uh away from Santa Fe, a little way away from Albuquerque. And um what is the science that you do, Paco? And, and how does Los Alamos National Labs or the people there influence what you do? So in general, I like simulating things. I want to put something uh, on the computer and I want to see it run. 
and that, that probably stems from uh, a lot of the video games that, that I played uh, in high school and, and growing nice. up. Um, it's just, I want to play video games with your life. Excellent. And so I also really think that magnetic fields uh, are really cool. Um, so I, I started learning about them and I was like, I want to do something with magnetic fields. And that was what I did in undergrad. Mm-hmm. I, I did a lot of research. I did a lot of research um, at MIT's Plasma Science Infusion Center. And I just continued to learn that, oh. that magnetic fields are cool. But I'd always wanted yeah. to do, you know, space has a lot of interesting things. And, you know, when I went, when I went to graduate school, I was kind of looking for what to do. I, you know, there's a lot of things to, to study. And so I was like, well, uh, here's my advisor uh, who would become my advisor. He works on galaxies. Cool. But he, he works on magnetic field stuff and, you know, things related to that. And I was like, all right, I think that's going to be my advisor. You know, I'll talk to him and, and, it, and it worked out. Nice. I work on, uh, I make galaxies. I set them up and then mm. I let them run. Um, and these galaxies, they have stars and they, they you know, they eject energy and supernova and, and the simulation evolves. But the, the particular part here is that they have uh, cosmic rays. Oh. So cosmic rays uh, would be just free-floating protons and other subatomic particles that just plow through space. Yeah. And so they're just like particle accelerator in the universe that, that causes them. Based on some measurements done in observations with um, the composition of cosmic rays, we kind of know that cosmic rays, while they're moving close to the speed of light, they do also kind of take, they have a resonance time in, in, in the galaxy. And it's, oh. it's more than, you know, it, it's, it's on the order of millions of years. And so wow. we're like, you know, okay, they're moving at the speed of light, but based on other constraints, we know that they're staying around in the galaxy. And so what causes, uh, just from, you know, first university physics courses, what causes charged particles to change direction that's magnetic fields. Magnetic fields. Magnetic fields. Yeah. Of course. And so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so and so there's a lot of uncertain uh, theory as to how this is done, how cosmic rays interact with the magnetic environment of the galaxy. Um, <clears throat> but think models like that is what we try to put into to the these these galaxies. And so there's like a fluid of cosmic rays that. Mm kind of exists separately than the gas but it kind of exchanges energy with it um and neat and that's really the basis of of my my uh thesis thesis work is trying to interact with that that's fantastic trying to talk about cosmic rays as like a perfectly normal physical phenomenon when we know that uh, in comic books what they did was created the fantastic four and dr Mm -hmm. doom and things like that um but that's actually something I'm waiting for them to get into the Marvel Cinematic Universe because they haven't gotten there yet. But the Fantastic Four, of course, uh, was for me as a kid what maybe video games were for you because I loved comics and I saw those things in Cosmic Rays. Uh, do Cosmic Rays actually have the potential to mutate human beings and turn them into superheroes? I think there, there was some estimate that they're they cause some percentage of computer errors on like a on oh, like really? yeah because they'll just punch through the so earth cosmic rays are flo- they're, they're going through us right now yeah yeah Ooh. so <laughs> so maybe i could become mr fantastic <laughs> yeah so so they'll do something right but 
you know, it's more of a random process. <laughs> so. Oh, that's too bad. That's okay. Oh, it's it's comforting to know that like we don't get destroyed by them instantly or anything like that. But uh, the cosmic rays are there, and and I think that's really neat for you to say. Now, you're saying that they actually live for millions of years in the galaxy, but they would be gone within a hundred thousand years or so because that's about how wide the Milky Way galaxy is, right? So they go flying through, but they get yeah. captured in this big circle, or even so less if, they if they're going like that. If they're even if they're going on the thin part of the disk, that they'll, they'll spend less time. Uh huh. So, right. So what happens then as they're doing this, if they're circling and they're creating what's essentially like a, a gigantic um, particle accelerator, right? Kind of like like the Large Hadron Collider or something, which is about 20 miles uh, long. But you're talking about something that's more like trillions and trillions of miles long. How are you going to simulate that? How do you stick that into a computer and figure out how that works? Yeah. And the, the answer is you don't. You, 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 you it, it, it's, it's the same analogy as to why when we model, like, let's say, you know, in an engine of a car where we model like thermal, thermal effects, right? Like there's some energy and then gas expands. And then we have this thing that, that allows us to extract energy and, and cause do useful work. Uh, when we do that, yeah. we're not, we're not really modeling the individual atoms or the, the motion mm. of particles. And it's kind of in the same in the same way because we know that there must be some sort of confinement of them. If you uh, calculate what that sort of length scale is, as long as you simulate things that are larger than that, like the con- larger than the confinement length scale, then you can kind of treat it like mm-hmm. a relativistic fluid. Like it's like a fluid, but it has a relativistic uh, equation of state. Wow. So fluids flowing at close to the speed of light, and thus they wind up acting very, very strangely compared to well, like water it, on it, Earth. It's kind of it, it's not moving at the speed of light. It, it's kind of moving along with the gas because you know that the bulk motion kind of moves with the gas. Oh, you know, yeah. Now, if you wanted to simulate the cosmic rays themselves, there's there's smaller scale simulations. You just can't do that as a galaxy. Galaxies are way too big. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Too bad. All right. Well, now is a good time to get a question. Uh, do we, uh, Alan, have questions from a student or from one of our patrons? Yeah. So we're going to start off with some student questions. Um, we got one. We got a couple of them. Uh, the one that we're going to start off with uh, is this one from Will from Pingree Astronomy Club. Will is asking, what are other extreme objects in the universe besides black holes and neutron stars? Ah, now we already know cosmic rays are kind of extreme, but they're not extreme like objects or extreme particles to some extent. Paco, what do you have for that? So I I actually, I do want to mention cosmic rays again, because not all cosmic rays are the same. Not all cosmic rays. They're they're kind of, they exist on a spectrum. Some of them, the ones that I was talking about, uh, they're they're the slower kind. Um, and now there's these things called ultra high energy cosmic rays, which are are moving extremely quickly. They they sort of have more energy than than the LHC would be able to to, to give. And yeah. they're the most energetic ones that have been found. I find myself thinking a lot about them, and it also leads into a lot of sci-fi too. I think the most ener- the most energetic particle that has been found has been nicknamed the Oh My God particle. Um, i don't i don't know if you've heard of this before but no it's moving oh my gosh yeah it's moving so fast so close to the speed of light you know can't approach it can't be the speed of light 
because it has mass. But it's moving so mm-hmm. close to the speed of light that I think I remember someone saying, and I think I, I confirmed this too, just just by myself, is if you race them across the galaxy, the a photon in a, that cosmic ray, by the end of the galaxy, the photon's only ahead by like a meter. Whoa, that's crazy. Um, so it's three it's, feet after a hundred thousand years. Unbelievable. Yeah, I, I would categorize that as an extreme object, and <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. The sci-fi thing that I think a lot about is just that, like, and I, I've, you know, I've actually, I've done this. I go on, like, Wolfram Alpha and calculate the, the time dilation factor on this. Um, and yeah. it's just, oh. it's just incredible, like, just insane amount of time dilation moving that close to the speed of light. For those members of our audience who aren't familiar with time dilation, right, that's an effect of the special theory of relativity that Albert Einstein explained. The faster you move uh, compared with the speed of light, then actually the time that you experience is actually reduced, right? Yeah. So, uh, for example, if I'm moving faster than you are, I actually will wind up aging less than you for a brief period of time, right? But what you're talking about here is extreme to the point where this cosmic ray literally has aged almost nothing in the thousands and thousands of years that it's traveled. Is that right? Yeah, and I, I find myself just imagining like, what? How would it feel like to be this single particle? Like, it, it doesn't have a mind, right? But, but yeah, it's. Um, and this is the the oh my god, like the OMG particle, as opposed to the so-called god particle, yeah, which is the Higgs boson, which actually isn't the god particle. They 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 didn't want to call it the god particle; it just became part of a title of a book, which wound up selling really well. But this oh my god particle is. is it, it was a detection, is that right? Something happened once a long time ago? Yeah, so it was a detection in October 1991 um, with a camera called the Fly's Eye camera that was looking for cosmic rays out in Utah. Oh. And it had enough energy that it, it's all the energy of like a baseball moving at like 60 miles an hour packed into a single particle. Whoa. So, you know, a baseball's, I don't know how many particles. 10 to the 23 is um, yeah. and but instead of that all those particles it's it's just one probably a proton we're not sure if it was a proton that's crazy that's amazing so if that particle actually had hit any one of us and had actually like been able to impart all of its kinetic energy into us we would have been knocked over as if we'd been hit by a fastball yeah, well, yeah. a change up i guess yeah it's not quite <laughs> a fastball but but still that's amazing one little particle wow yeah Okay, I can understand why they decided to call it the OMG particle. That's terrific. So how do you compute that? How do you, how do, you do that computational work there, uh, Paco? Because, you know, the, many members of our audience love video games too and love simulating stuff and love thinking about this thing that you're doing right now. So what is the guts of it in, in you know, non-specialist way of talking about it? How, how do you actually go about computing or simulating these kinds of amazing objects? Yeah, that's... That's something that I feel like it's a continuous process to learn. I, when I first mm-hmm. started doing a lot of simulations, I wasn't really working with a lot of the, the sort of guts of the simulation. And I, I kind of understood it like, like in a rudimentary sense, like, oh yeah, like I, I did some math in, in, in college and kind of just solve the equations and then things come out of it. Like it sounds reasonable. Um, but I think when you when you start learning more about this, you realize that these equations are very complicated. I mean, they're, they're, you can't just sit on a piece of paper and and solve them and, and try to do it for the whole galaxy, yeah. especially when you have like a 
a star goes off here and then uh, something else is happening here and it's all moving. Um, I only recently, I decided to take a, a graduate math class uh, during my PhD. Uh, just uh-huh. be, just because I was like, you know, I, I kind of want to see how this is done. And, and we kind of built up the theory. And what it is, is just people have thought of really clever ways of solving these equations on like large, with a lot of like data points. Um, oh. And so honestly, like at yeah. some point it just turns into an art. Like when you start reading a lot of, <laughs> when you start reading a lot of like the choices that people have made or why they've, they've made these things, it's because you're solving the equations. You're, you know, it's too hard to do it exactly so we're going to make this approximation but this approximation is terrible under certain certain circumstances so (laughs) someone has spent like several years of their life focusing on this one problem so they toss in a a a band-aid and they just keep band-aiding it so it's 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 almost like a rube goldberg machine (laughs) honestly like at at some point like you're like yeah this this uh, textbook says I have to make this choice, and so I'll do it. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and I've ha- I've had some, I've had simulations in my PhD that galaxies going, and suddenly, faster than the speed of light, the galaxy just blows up the entire thing. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> like it just explodes. Yeah, <laughs> that's spectacular. It there's no. There's no like trying to figure out why it happened or what. It's just it's an instability. Like the, there's too many things going on. Every it's it's not exact, and so you just have wow. to you just have to talk to someone who knows what they're doing and be like, all right, what bandage should I put on this so that it it, it, it doesn't explode? Yeah, because we don't see those galaxies exploding all the time. <laughs> yeah, and so you're like, all right, well, I try this bandaid. Did the galaxy still explode? Yes. All right, try this other bandaid. <laughs> <laughs> I, what a great lesson, actually, for all of us. I, I, I myself, having never observed a galaxy exploding, uh, we often don't realize how much of this computational stuff or the scientific stuff is still quite unknown and you're still experimenting. That's a great yeah. lesson for us all. Thank you, Paco. That, that's really neat to understand it. And we should realize that I mean, it's not all settled. There's still lots of things to tweak. I imagine that you've probably, in your work, tweaked this thing that people said don't tweak because it'll blow up the galaxy and you tweaked it and it blew up the galaxy and yeah. you're like well maybe i could find something else to tweak so that it won't blow up and then it becomes like you said another band-aid or an art or something and that's research that's science right yeah, that is science yeah oh that's wonderful alan we have another question we do have another question so the other this is another question about extreme stuff uh is there an upper limit to the size of a black hole and that's a question from Jayla from North Andover. Ah, now Paco, you've made galaxies blow up faster than the speed of light. Can you put an upper bound to a black hole? Yeah, this is a, I, I like this question because it's a question that I've Googled um, repeatedly throughout my life. <laughs> um, I, I really like black holes. Um, and so I've, yeah. I've Googled a bunch of, you know, uh, what's the hottest temperature? What's the longest wavelength? Like questions. Um, as far as I know, I think there is probably not an upper limit, although I guess the astronomy answer is that some people have proposed that if you make them too big, then they kind of have inefficient 
accretion so like they they can't get stuff fast enough after they get so big and so there's kind of like oh. an, it might be an effective upper limit just because they they just can't eat efficiently anymore so theoretically you can add mass as much as you want but on a practical level sooner or later nothing falls in because at the surface of the black hole the schwarzschild radius is just not attractive or it's more that like like stuff has to fall to the black hole for it to get there and i think eventually like it I, I don't I, I don't remember too much, but maybe it just clears out its its area and then just stuff doesn't fall in that fast. Do you know if it's like ten billion, a hundred billion, a trillion times the mass of the sun? Or I mean, I, I know the heaviest black hole is something ridiculous like uh like several billion, probably like ten to the nine, right? Or more gas solar masses. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is Billions which is of times which is like ridiculous because you, you you start talking about like clusters of stars and like parts of galaxies that weigh that much and so you know here you yeah. have an entire black hole um, so black holes are can get very still very very massive apparently like and have been observed at that those masses so it sounds like there is no upper limit but we haven't found the limit yet or that there is a limit we haven't found it yet so far we're up to billions of times the mass of the sun okay great question thank you so much and yes we must not underestimate the power of a search engine in our efforts to learn about the universe. Paco, is there anything else you really want to share with us? Is there anything really cool in terms of like science fiction stuff that's happening now or uh, any kind of neat thing that's happening where you are, what you're doing, those sorts of things? Yeah, well, I guess I think it'd be useful to mention, I didn't specifically mention anything I've done at Los Alamos. Um yeah. So, we were talking about Los Alamos. Yeah. Tell us about it. Yeah, I think that kind of stemmed from I, I was looking, uh, as I kind of mentioned, you know, with the computational stuff. Sometimes it kind of you can get into these all of details, and it's, it's challenging. And I, I was looking for just to get a fresh perspective on something else. So I, I really wanted to do something that has nothing to do with my thesis or anything. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. uh, so I just you know applied to go work at Los Alamos uh, through a summer program. Um, and because of the pandemic, it, it ended up being remote. Um, and so then I, because things were still remote because of the pandemic continued on, uh, I just continued working there. And then I went the next summer with another group. And so I've been, uh, I've contributed to some machine learning projects. Um, and so one of which was actually uh, trying to apply machine learning to, to mathematical algorithms. Um, okay. And so, so yeah, I actually ended up getting experience with machine learning, uh, which I, I think was just a very useful thing to do. Uh, but one of the things that I appreciate about being in a sort of pseudo-academic environment, like it's not like strictly yeah. a university, but it's not strictly like a private research lab, is that the people that, the people that I work with are, are uh, incredibly diverse in terms of their academic backgrounds. Um, oh, which I think I think is fantastic. Like I I haven't worked with an astronomer yet, and I, I've worked with like <laughs> a bunch of people. I, I've worked with people who have PhDs in nuclear engineering, statistics, geophysical um, fluid dynamics. Wow! And it's just it's really cool to be like tackling the same problems and being interesting in the same things, but but having different perspectives. Because yeah. um, like one of the projects that I was working on is. Um, is related to the ChemCam, which is a, on the Curiosity rover oh. on Mars. So you, using that data that they acquire, uh, they shoot lasers at rocks and they observe the light oh. that comes from the rock. Um, yeah. And so with that, you can kind of estimate what the composition is of the rock without like 
going to it and picking it up and analyzing it. Um, and yeah. so I was working with some um, machine learning to do that. But, you know, the cool thing was, is that like the people I was working with, uh, most of them were like statisticians or computer scientists. Um, oh. And so it was just interesting from that perspective, being more, more, uh, having more of a background of like the physics and the, in the planetary science and the part of it. Uh, whereas they're coming from it from, you know, this is data and there's some representation of that data and there's various statistical processes that you can use to extract that data. Um, yeah. Wow. So I, I, I've really enjoyed that. And I, you know, I, I, I'm kind of sad that now that I'm finishing up my PhD, that, that that'll come to an end because um, I'm not uh, going to go work at Los Alamos, but, but it was definitely uh-huh. a solid, wow. two, solid two years that, that I enjoyed. That's spectacular. I'm really glad you shared that with us. Thank you so much. And and Alan, of course, uh, being uh, formally trained as a mathematician, I'm sure would find very interesting the kinds of artificial intelligence work you're doing to solve mathematical algorithms. I think that's cool. Yeah, it's definitely a really exciting area of, of research. So tell me, what are you doing after this? I know you're almost done with the University of Michigan. And then what are you going to head off doing? Tell us all about it and tell us how we can follow you. Yeah. What I really wanted to continue is I wanted to continue doing research and, and computational research. Where I ended up or where I uh, applied and got accepted to is what I think is, is precisely what I, what I set out to, to, to find in my job search. <clears throat> you know, I, I meandered wow. through the job application process and I somehow ended up where I wanted to be. <laughs> um, and that's wonderful. That's, That's at right. the Applied Physics Lab uh, at Johns Hopkins University. Oh, in Maryland. In Maryland, yeah. And so it's a permanent position. Um, wow. And, and so I'm, I'm going to be, you know, the group focuses on general space topics. That could be uh, national security things. That could be uh, space probe related things. Um, and so I just, such a broad group and, and, they just work on space things and a lot of simulations and a lot of interdisciplinary yeah. work. And I'm, I, I, I've been, I, when I was talking to them during the interview, I feel like I clicked with almost everything that, that they were talking about. And so I'm just, I'm just Wonderful. excited to, I'm just excited to get there and just start kind of hold, grabbing on to different things to do. <laughs> oh, I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, the Applied Physics Lab is, is where several uh, famous planetary missions have been based, right? think maybe new horizons or near shoemaker mm-hmm. a few of these others that's just a wonderful place and if it's anything like the uh, if it's anything like the environment you described at los alamos where you could really spread your wings and do creative things i think that's spectacular that's wonderful good for you hooray well i will ask you right now if you will come back again sometime in the future and we'll chat more about science fiction science fact and science all kinds of stuff and we'll geek out and have more fun would you do that? Yeah, def- definitely. I, I, I thought this was really, really cool and really excited to, to sort of talk and cover a lot of things that are interrelated. Um, so I, I'd definitely be really happy to, to come back and, and talk more about stuff. <laughs> Consider that a high probability likelihood then. Thank you so much, Paco. Alan, thank you so much as always for your superb activity. Much appreciate yeah. it. Uh, thank you again, Paco. We'll talk again soon. Congratulations on the things that you're doing now and the things that you will be doing soon at the Applied Physics Lab. And thank you, everybody out there. Thank you, audience, for being with us today. If you want to support this show, please go to our Patreon page and give us an opportunity to produce even more wonderful shows and conversations. Until then, 
Thank you so much. Thank you for being a part of the Ludiverse. <laughs>